0: Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and I'm Jake and we have a really cool episode for you today. Jake has been prepping for quite a while on the history of the Daytona Raceway and I don't I called it the Daytona Speedway. It it is the
1: Daytona International Speedway today today as of today. No, I oh, mean, today like, as it, at, like currently I thought we that's were having like a special event as of today. <laughs> that would have been really cool. No, but no. In the, it hasn't always been called that. OK, I got I got you. you, I got you.
0: Um, b- before we do that, um, what have you got going on? Anything in the in the world of Jake?
1: <laughs> a little bit. I have I'm, a fiasco to talk about, but a fiasco. I have a fiasco. OK, well, I'll just go through my week real quick. I, I'm sadly realizing that my most like noteworthy or attention getting car is the Hummer truck. Like well, I get know, more comments on that truck than I do driving around an orange well, vintage 911. You certainly don't see the Hummers every day, right? And that's what it is. But people stop me everywhere I go and are like, "I didn't know they made one of these," and just like want to go off on it. And right. I just, it's like, but no one wants to talk about my 911. I
0: like that one better. Well, that's the opposite of the reaction that I've had. I get all kinds of people asking oh, I'm about sure. the 911. But also, speaking of the Hummer, maybe it's because that deck lady put
1: on your car. <laughs> <laughs> no one's seen that yet it'll be great that'll get all the attention yeah we'll see all right no i noticed uh speaking of the hummer my brake lights stopped working is for it a, do you have a switch an undisclosed like amount a- of time yeah so it's the brake light switch did it kind of fall down and it's not i don't know because there's two of them so you'd think one would be like a fail safe but no so like i took one out tested it like jumped the leads even no yeah. that's not it took the other one out and like that didn't do anything either did,
0: did you check the bulbs
1: no, I did. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I also googled like brake light fuse. Okay. I don't think there should be one. As soon as I put the brake light switch back together, it started working again. Okay, so like all of my troubleshooting didn't work, but then when you put it back together, it did. So I had uh, on my
0: nine eleven, I had tail lights and like blinkers and stuff that weren't working. Right. At one point, and I thought maybe it was the bulb. I thought maybe it was a fuse. So I I took everything apart and put it back together at least at least a hundred times. Sure, no joke a hundred times i had this stuff apart and together and i couldn't figure out what it was eventually i just i took and i'd never taken the right side tail light out okay and there was a ground over there that wasn't attached <laughs> so, so i wasted just, shorting just, out the just wasted so day. much yeah. time but uh that's anyway. always fun so what's been going on with you fiasco so fiasco so maybe i shouldn't have said it was a fiasco right away but it is a fiasco i took the i was gonna go snowmobiling last right. weekend and i loaded because we
1: finally have a ton of snow here we have in a ton soda
0: So I was going to, I put the snowmobile up on the trailer and it's got, you know, the skis come forward Yep. and you tie it down with a little thing and there's like a little metal bar. Yeah. Like ski crossbar thing. Right. That holds the skis down on the trailer. Sure. And I got it as tight as I could. I thought it was really tight and I'm, and I'm wrenching on the thing and I'm turning, I'm banging it with my hand, Uh trying to get it tight. And I'm like, great, it's tight. Let's go. I got up probably about 45 minutes away and I'm at the stoplight about (laughs) to turn left to get on the freeway. And I hear a. (laughs) No, right in the middle of the road, the snowmobile slides off the back of the trailer, (laughs) (laughs) lands in the middle of the street. And I'm like, and it's like a four lane highway. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my god,
1: <laughs> what am I Did gonna the do? Snowmobile land upright? At yeah, least? It landed flat, okay. upright. I was it just, expecting it like rolling. No, nope, it, it literally
0: just slid right off the back. <laughs> oh, okay, and I looked in
1: the rearview mirror and I just saw it going <laughs> in slow motion. In slow motion, just, and uh, I saw the lady behind like raise her arms
0: up, like what's, yeah, you know, what, what is this what is all this? about? I'm like, well, at least she didn't run over the run over the snowmobile. Okay, but um, so anyway, so I. I'm like, what do I do? So I like, I started to back up, and then I'm all nervous and like freaked out. So then it's a snowmobile trailer, which means I'm like, like turn the wheel a little
1: bit, and it goes all over the place because it's it's not like a long wheelbase trailer where it's easy to no, it's super hard.
0: So I said, nah, never mind, and I drove up around the block and pulled up on the median, okay, and pulled the truck through it in four wheel drive, pulled up in the median. Turned the snowmobile around and like drove it onto the median. And did then, the snowmobile start right away? Yeah. Cause yeah, that did. would have been super frustrating like in the middle of traffic. The, just, <laughs> ah! just yanking the hell out of the thing. No, yeah, it started up just fine. Okay. Thank goodness. So, so you got it back on the trailer. I had my my buddies had gotten on the freeway. I'm like beeping. Like we're just like beeping. Like, please stop. Don't yeah. stop. And then they ended up they they came back and helped me. Cause I need to have someone, it's a tilt trailer. Right. So I need to have, to have someone hold
1: the trailer to get down. that thing So
0: I got it back on there and I went, guys, I'm done. I went home. Oh, I really? Was, yeah. There was other things that were on my mind at the time. And I'm like, this was. How far was a,
1: were you from your destination? Another 40 minutes. Okay.
0: Yeah, probably. So about, half there. I was halfway, halfway there, there. And you're like, no. I'm done. I'm like, this is the straw. This is a sign. Yeah. I'm, I'm going home. So, so what what actually happened? The, the 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 little tie bar must have just rotated and huh. it slid right off the back. I just didn't have it tight. There must have been ice in the in the threads or something because I had it really tight, but it must right. just not have been tight enough. So it just—it must have just wrote as it slid back. The the arm must have just rotated, and that was the end of that. Don't is, aren't you usually supposed to strap the back of the sled as well? Yeah, but that wouldn't have helped anyway because it slid off backwards. Oh. There's I don't. So what I did is I ended up putting. I did have a ratchet strap, so I put it through the skis and like ratcheted it down again. Right. it's so like some and I usually do that, but I was like ah, it's fine, it'll be good. <laughs> so anyway, so I come home, I back the trailer up. And I left it running because I was going to do some things. And I only had like a quarter of a tank of gas left. So I left it running okay. and, I, and I took the trailer off and set it down and, you know, put the cover on the snowmobile and did other sure. things, went inside, got distracted.
1: Oh, and so the truck's idling out. It's there. idling
0: out there till it ran out of gas. <laughs> so i go out so this is the next morning so the last time i drove it was that would have been saturday it is now
1: (laughs) thursday so as far as we know it's been (laughs) idling for days days
0: (laughs) it's been idling for days so the truck's so i go there guys just like what is wrong with this stupid truck this pos that i can't sell what's going on with the thing now and i'm like and i look at the and i turn the key off and i turn the key on i'm waiting for the gas gauge to like move up a little bit you know it kind of like sits up a little even if it's really low it just kind of goes moves a little there is nothing, right? Now what? It's just like, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm gonna. So I go, and I get the my uh, my little um, gas can. The little jerry can.
1: One gallon or five gallon? Uh, The the,
0: uh, three gallon. Oh, okay. It's like a little, but it's not full. It's mostly empty. Okay. (laughs) Because I had put whatever was in it into my uh, snowblower. snowblower.
1: Oh, snowblower. Okay. Into the
0: snowblower. Right. Because I needed to snowblow the driveway because we got a ton of snow. Yeah. So, So I'm like, I trickle whatever's left in there. And this would not start. So I had to take, I took the fuel line off the snowblower, drain the gas that was in the full tank of the snowblower into the gas can, poured that in, which was probably like half a gallon. Yeah. And it was able to make it to the gas station. Oh, geez. And then I filled it all the way up. Yeah. Of okay. course. I like put the, filled the
1: thing all the way up. So that was... <laughs> Speaking of snow blowing. like the fiasco. So a few, like the last few years actually, we've gotten hardly any snow and I had an old, beefy snowblower that was like overkill. And right? how many times did you have to yank it to get yes, the thing to Yes, exactly. Start? And the, for some reason I was stupid and modified it, so I had a big tractor pipe coming off of it and it was rusty. And what was do you like, mean for some reason? That sounds like something <laughs> exactly, exactly that I do. Yeah. Exactly. So finally I was like, never use this thing. It's not worth it. Like if we get two inches of snow like we usually do, these aren't even that efficient on that amount of snow right so i sold it and i bought a used little like two cycle snow pup i call them right
0: okay is and that an so, actual
1: name or that's just your nickname i think that's a brand somewhere it's the toro snow thrower i don't it's okay. i call it the snow pup just the little like non whatever propelled two cycle you have to single push it yourself stage. right right and so that worked great for the amount of snow we've got for the last like four years. Yeah. Except for this year it's when we have nightmare. feet of snow. And so what I do know is I get a traction strip. That's what I call it. So it's like the opposite of a landing strip haircut. Yeah, you just, for I the do tires? Like, Yep, just one traction strip so that the Audi's snow tires up I just imagine there. I'm s-
0: imagining out there going, hm, just like yep, shoving a lot the thing into the snow. And then everyone's like, everyone over, goes over. Over. It doesn't work at all. So screw this snow. Well, I, for five years I've had a brand new snowblower that I've never used. Yeah. It's a nice two-stage. Everybody right. in California that's listening right now is like, God, why do you live there? <laughs> this all sounds terrible. Or they're
1: turning us off. The snowblower hour. I'm oh, over the
0: rest. Yeah. Anyway. So that's
1: that's everything that's been going wrong in my life. That's <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Um well before we move on, we gotta make sure that everyone knows about Patreon that we do. It's at patreon.com slash Overcrest. You can be the first to hear new episodes. We do exclusive content yep. every month now. And if you want, you can you can download the Patreon app and okay. then
0: it'll update you every time we update the podcast. Whatever you're listening to now, you can also listen to it there. So awesome. wherever you're listening to this one, you can listen to it there. Actually, a little bit early. Right. Plus, you get our exclusive once a month episodes that we've been doing, some exclusive content and we'll send you a T-shirt or some stickers or both. Exactly. Or whatever. You know, we'll get some stuff out to you. Um, yep. Five bucks a month you know, show some support, subscribe, you know, it's, it's really, really easy. And you know, 10 bucks a month, will send you a shirt
1: and we um, appreciate it. We
0: really, really appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate the support. And of course, appreciate you telling everybody about us.
1: Yeah. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, social media. We love to hear from you. Yep. Overcrest active. something. It's so, all at
0: Overcrest, whatever. So you'll be absolutely. able to find it.
1: All right. What have we got? Let's get our into main our main segment way. here. This is the history of Daytona Raceway. So Chris, there's a strip of sand along Florida's Atlantic coast where the beach has notoriously hard-packed sand. This is known as Daytona Beach, and its history is inextricably linked with motor racing. The first men who took notice of this kind of hard-packed, smooth area strip of sand were n- n- none other than Ransom and Exa- Alexander. Ransom and Exa- Who are these people? You don't, you don't know who Ransom or Alexander are? No. Well, the memes may not mean anything on their own, but Ransom E. Olds and Alexander Winston each had their own car companies, one of which you may be able to guess. Yeah. Oldsmobile. Yes. Okay. So in 1902, the owners of Oldsmobile and the Winston Motor Carriage Company, which I no one knows about, <laughs> they're done. So <laughs> did they start producing cigarettes instead? Is that At Winston? Yeah. Maybe. So they staged a bit of a competition between their cars on this hard packed sand of Daytona Beach. Now, the winner of this fabled race was apparently lost to history. But I'd like to think it was Olds Who won, since we know about Oldsmobiles and not the Winston Motor Carriage Company. <laughs> yeah, they're not around anymore. Regardless, it wasn't long before word got out and Daytona Beach became the premier location to chase down land speed records. So were they just doing this on the beach? Literally on the beach. Okay. Well, you see that some of the
0: like the the gentleman racing that they get out and do yeah. where they, they get out with the Model A's or Model T's or whatever. Exactly. They
1: rip up and down That's the beach. That's where it comes from. Okay. So, between 1905 and 1935, there were at least 13 organized events that took place on the beach, and over 15 land speed records were actually set right there. Okay. So, this is before the salt flats that they're doing? Okay. Most notable of those land speed records happened on the 22nd of February, 1933, when Sir Malcolm Campbell i got to break out my British accent here. Yeah. Drove his supercharged Rolls-Royce V12-powered Bluebird to a ridiculous speed. What was it? 276 miles an hour on a beach. That's pretty impressive. In 1933. That's bonkers. So once these speeds reached well over 200 miles an hour, which it is, those seeking to play break land speed records moved to the Bonneville salt flats because can you imagine at those speeds what a narrow kind of undulating beach surface would feel like terrible it would be it would be
0: awful hey, is this just like after the tide went out it might be really flat right the tide goes out it's probably pretty flat like self-levels yeah but
1: still it's narrow compared to like The salt flats. Well, yeah. Could
0: you imagine being like a crab, just like mine in your own business?
1: (laughs) Just like. (laughs) So that's crazy. This is the part of the story, though, where we kind of change gears. That was Daytona Beach, all the land speed records. We're going to enter Sig Hogdal. Sig was born on January 10th, 1891 on the Tiller Farm in Norway. All right. So he migrated to the United States in 1910, making his home with an uncle in good old Albert Lee, Minnesota. Oh, right. Homeboy. Yes. So Minnesota must have seemed like home to Sig, this native Norwegian, with all the frozen waterways, right? And like the same weather as we're just complaining about. So it makes sense. We all have some Scandinavian blood in us. So it's really no surprise then that his first foray into racing was on ice. In 1912, Sig drove a specially equipped Indian motorcycle in local ice races. This ice bike, as they were calling it, was said to have reached a speed of 70 miles per hour in 1912, which is pretty cool on ice. Uh, from there, he switched out to different types of motor racing. He did a lot of um, like dirt bike, dirt bike riding. I, they weren't even dirt bikes at the time. It was basically just motorized. Bicycles that you were riding on dirt. And then uh, he switched to racing cars on dirt track in 1918. So as it turns out, Sig was actually really, really good as a dirt track driver, becoming the International Motor Contest Association champion six years in a row between 1927 and 1932. But before all that, he built... The Wisconsin special. All right. What's that involves? <laughs> I'm just imagining something that has to do with cheese. The car was named after its engine, the 836 cubic inch Wisconsin airplane six cylinder, which was directly connected to the rear wheels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, did it have some sort of gear reduction? No.
1: No. So I, just as far like as I know, it drive. was just direct drive. You start it, like you must just pop start it as you're pushing. Throttle down, rock and roll. I wonder if there was, yeah, so no clutch, nothing. Well, it's an airplane engine. So he literally took it from the front of an airplane and just mounted it on the back of the car. Yeah, but how fast could you really go? Let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> so, first, I want to set the scene. And we do have an image of this as well that we'll share. The car was just shy of eight feet long and only 20 inches wide. <laughs> <laughs> okay so and this this 836 it's all all motor oh yeah this 836 cubic inch inch Wisconsin airplane engine put out 250 horsepower and as I can imagine with that much displacement an ungodly amount of torque v8 inline inline six inline six yes that is those pistons are pretty serious yeah six well 836 divided by six those are like coffee cans yeah they're serious so he literally just built a missile on wheels when you picture something eight feet long, 20 inches wide with a massive engine. So you're,
0: you're basically sitting on the rear axle with like yes. this long <laughs> steering column that's going yep. all the way out to the front <laughs> wheels past <laughs> this giant six-cylinder engine. Right. It must have sounded insane. I can't too. imagine. You know, they used to have like, on uh, some of the planes and old tanks and stuff like that, they would have... I, I wonder if this is how they would start this thing, but you would have a because there had to be some way to engage the drive. Right. right. There must have been something. It wouldn't just I don't think you would. Push, I have no idea. Thing. But anyway, what they would do is they'd have this big flywheel. So you'd crank this big flywheel, like really heavy. like Right. Like, whoa, 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 and you would crank it as hard as you can for a while. And then you would drop it. Oh on the motor. sure and yep. that's what would turn the motor over and yes. get it started cuz it had this huge amount of inertia yep. on these and so that that's how you would start it and it was like that's if you were in dire need the starter was bad or okay. the, or the the battery was like one that you have <laughs> in one of your cars <laughs> you'd have to like crank up this enormous like who knows how much it weighs flywheel and then throw it throw all that throw inertia in into your, the engine yep. and then it would then it would start which for old diesel stuff was like really really hard to get started anyway
1: yeah there was a, a like video of exactly that happening at the um, Goodwood festival of speed this last year. Okay. And it was like this old guy in like, you know, this hundred year old car just sitting here cranking it <laughs> on the starting line and then drops in all the smoke comes out and yeah. screws everywhere. Yep. So yeah, I can imagine this is probably what our friend Sig here had to deal with. There had to be something, there had to be some way to engage. Otherwise, how would you stop it? Because
0: it would have with an engine that <laughs> yeah, <you're> size, right. <laughs>
1: with, that, with an engine that
0: size, even if you turn off the fuel or spark or something, that's a
1: lot you're of You're going to keep going for You're going to keep going. <laughs> Just steer right into the sir. So with a missile on wheels with a giant engine, where do you take that? to Daytona, Daytona beach, baby. It's the only place you can go. Yeah. So on April 7th, 1922, Sig Hogdahl piloted his Wisconsin special to a world land speed record of 180 miles an hour. And and this is much slower than the other vehicle you were talking about. Yes, but this was seven years earlier. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. We kind of went back in time here to follow Sig. So, the official record was not awarded to him, though, because the run was not timed by the officiating body of the time, the American Automobile Association. Okay. Yes. That automobile, American Automobile Association. AAA. AAA. They I were the officiating body of land speed records. So they used to be cool. Which is kind of a far cry from like a towing service. Yeah. Insurance. Well, it
0: used, AAA used to be like they would help you with your hotels. They would help you travel the road. They would right. help do it. Now they're just kind of like they're the only thing you really need from AAA is with it, towing. Is towing. Yeah. You know, what else do you really need? They try to do research for you. They try to do other things. You don't really need
1: maps. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, AAA was really cool back in the day. So, but they weren't there that day. So he didn't get the official land speed record. But regardless, Sig made a name for himself between the speed record attempt and the later dirt track championships that we talked about. So, when land speed record attempts finally moved from Daytona Beach to the Bonneville Salt Flats, Daytona Beach officials were concerned about the loss of all the spectator revenue. Like this was a mecca that everyone would come to. Right. Like SIG, for instance. So they did, they, did, they have, did they have bleachers? Or did they just all like... They did have bleachers, okay. yeah. Um, and this was all just kind of for straight line, you know, time yeah, trials. Just, not time trials, but like land speed records, right? So they asked Hogdahl to organize and promote an automobile race. The city posted five grand as a purse and SIG designed the racetrack. On a narrow beach. Or this, is this in the city of Daytona? The course started on the pavement of Highway A1A, Beachfront Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, it, is that what it is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it started on Highway... What song, what song is that? That's a Vanilla Ice song, I think. A1A, Beachfront Avenue. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So it started at 4511 South Atlantic Avenue, which is right off of Highway A1A, which fun fact is now the address of a restaurant named Racing's North Turn, as a time. Okay. kind of homage to this. Sure. The course then this, went this south. This history
0: reminds me of Road America a little bit. How yes. it started out yep. with like on the racing on the street and
1: everything else. Yeah, there are a lot of racetracks I could do the history of like this, so it, it is interesting how they all kind of start. So it went for uh, almost two miles down A1A to the end of the road. Like I think the, the freeway just stopped there at some point. And then they drove into basically the beach on the, what is it called here? I want to get the names right. Beach Street. Okay. And then they turned up and returned two miles north. You know, there's somebody listening.
0: There's somebody in Daytona going, okay,
1: Beach (laughs) Street, A1A. Okay. I was there. I had coffee at the Starbucks there like 20 minutes ago. Yeah. So then they went back up the beach and returned to that A1A at the north turn. So, not a crazy route. It's basically a big rectangle. Okay. And each lap was just shy. It was like I saw 3.2 to four miles. Okay. So, it's It's a fair size course. Fairly standard. Right. And just like that, the Daytona Beach Road Race of 1936 was set. However, when the city's employees arrived the morning of the race on March 8th to sell tickets, they were dismayed to find thousands of fans already surrounding this makeshift track. The city was said to have lost a reported twenty two thousand dollars in revenue from what they were planning on selling all these tickets. But that's why they put up the purse money. Oh, okay. but there was no gates or anything, so people just like, oh yeah, the race is today. Oh, Let's they just go. showed up there, yeah. sitting on the curb. Yeah, and then so these officials were there, the ticket takers they called them were there, and they're like, oh crap, everyone's already out here. What are we gonna do? That was it. (laughs) Fairly poor planning on their part. What's worse, due in part to all these unmitigated spectators, the sandy turns became virtually impassable, which caused numerous scoring disputes and technical protests in the actual race. So where people were just like standing in the middle of the circuit like, yeah, I I don't know. This is like Group B style? Yes, that's what I'm picturing. So the event was actually stopped after 75 of the 78 laps they were supposed to do. So three laps to the end, they're like, this is getting out of hand, we're just gonna call it. So Milt marion was declared the winner by triple a which again is the sanctioning body i love that second place finisher ben shaw and third place finisher tommy elmore protested the results but their appeal was overturned so all in all yeah on one hand the race was a mess i was gonna say it sounds like a complete and utter failure well the race was a mess and the city of daytona beach refused to promote any further events having lost out on all this money they planned to collect However, the spectacle as an event itself was successful, as evidenced by how many people yeah, showed they, up. And they were all out. interested, yeah. Exactly. So Sig Hogdahl talked with France, who was another racer and local auto shop owner, William France, and they convinced the Dayton Beach Elks Why is Club, everybody's name from back then cool? <laughs> <laughs> Everything, every time we do one of these, there's some guy with a cool name, William Sig, France. Yeah, William France, William Bill France. He went by Bill. So him and Sig went out to the Daytona Beach Elks Club and they basically convinced them to sponsor a race the following year. They were like, look, we know the city put it up the first year and we planned it terribly. But if you sponsor this, we're going to take it and we're going to do it awesome. Okay. so the 1937 event was a little more successful, but still didn't make any money. I don't know why. Maybe people just showed up on the beach again like they did the previous year. So with two lackluster races having come and gone, our friend Sig got out of the race organizing racket for good. He's done. He's like, I was good at racing, not so much at the planning of the races. Sure. So this left William Bill France the job of running the course in 1938. And there were actually two events that year. Danny Murphy beat France in the July event, which made him $200. France beat Lloyd Moody and Pig Ridings. Wait, Moody? Yes. Like from Holman and Moody? I don't know. Okay. This might be too early for that. Uh, Yeah, it might be. Well, maybe it was his dad or something. True. So France beat Lloyd Moody and Pig Ridings to win the Labor Day weekend event, this time making 20 grand. That's a far cry from 200 bucks. Right. But you're missing kind of the biggest outlandish thing here. So time out. Let's overlook the fact that there was actually a racer named Pig. (laughs) Our guy, William France, not only organized the races, he also participated in them and won. Okay, so that doesn't seem right. (laughs) I can't imagine people were too happy with that. So there were three races then in 1939 and in 1940. And this is the same circuit? Yes. Okay. William France finished 4th in March, 1st in July, and 6th in September. All right. So he's like putting on these races, racing, and winning like half of them. That's
0: like throwing a birthday party for someone else and then eating all the cake. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> or opening, it's like opening everybody else's Christmas, Christmas, Christmas presents. presents. Yeah, like yeah. with the kids or at the Christmas, they just start opening all the presents. Uh, even though- <laughs> all for you guys. And then, all right, it's a race and you get them all. <laughs>
1: Sorry. So uh, France was busy planning the 1942 event when word came that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. So, with the U.S. entering the war, racing at Daytona Beach was put on hiatus, and France himself actually spent World War II working at the Daytona Beach Works, making Navy vessels. Sure. So, when the war finally ended, William France knew that promoters needed to organize their efforts. They needed to get it together here. In the past, drivers were frequently victimized by shady promoters who would leave events with all the money before any of the drivers were paid their purse. Okay. (laughs) Which is probably why Williams started raising himself, saying, well, I have all the money anyways, so I know I'm not going to get gypped on it. Right. So on February 21st, 1948... William France... Honestly, it sounds like this whole thing needs some sort of sanctioning body. You're right. It does, it, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it needs a sanctioning body to come in there, take control, and build a structure around this. That's exactly what
1: William France did in 1948. He established, I am good, He Jake. established a new association of auto racing that aimed to be more legitimate. Like you said, let's put structure on this thing. They called it the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. I've heard of that before. What? You might know it by NASCAR. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so NASCAR held its first event at the Daytona Road Course that year and continued to race there a- exclusively. And now, when they were racing back then,
0: what, what they had—all these cars were exactly the same. They all had exactly the same engines, <laughs> and uh, and all the bodies were made of plastic. Yeah, not quite. It's no. a far cry from where we are today. Oh, so
1: what wasn't like that? No, they so were it, literally what? just stock cars that you would get off the dealer showroom, From, you can, and then you just go and race so them. So you could run what you brung. Run what you brung. That sounds pretty cool. That's so much better than where we are today. Where can we see NASCAR today? It sounds like it would
0: be great. <laughs> right? All these modern cars out there that are super fast. Could you, yeah. imagine some and just guy, like, could you imagine going to the showroom and getting a Hellcat and some other guy getting a ZL1 and going out and racing them? That would be amazing. How great would that be out on out on the real circuit? Oh, but they
1: don't do that, do they, Jay? No, they don't. All right, and this isn't going to be a NASCAR episode, so I'm not going Sorry. into the history. Sorry, I just... but I agree. That's it. NASCAR was so cool back in the day because it literally was like some guy buys a showroom fresh Chevy, this guy buys a Plymouth. They bring them out to the racetrack here, and they're racing on the beach and up and down the highway. Yeah, and you would go out and see this, and it was a spectacle. It was awesome. So. NASCAR raced exclusively at Daytona Beach until 1950, when the Darlington Speedway was constructed in South Carolina. So then they went. Never a, heard of it. Yeah, I'm well. <laughs> I'm sure if you're a NASCAR <laughs> fan, you have probably uh, by 1950 by by 1953, the Daytona Beach race course was being outgrown by the large crowds attending and the countless racers bargaining for time on the course. So it was that popular, and I d- I don't know if like. Did they shut down the highway every time they had this course? I imagine or was they it had to. not a highway anymore? I, I don't know. So it was becoming just too popular. It was time for a change. So our buddy, William France, proposed plans for a permanent race course. He called it the Daytona International Speedway. France met with local engineer Charles Moneypenny. Come on! <laughs> Get out of here with that! <laughs> Charles, Charles Moneypenny! Moneypenny. I know! I, dang it! Right! No, I'm glad you said before that they have cool names, because enter Charles Moneypenny. Yeah! So, like, he also apparently worked for James Bond, right? Moneypenny. <laughs> I'm assuming he probably
0: worked for some sort of uh, some sort of bank. Is, is my It guess. would have been great. You, would you bank at the Bank of
1: Moneypenny? Heck yeah, I would. No, he was actually like an architect and a designer. Okay. So, they discussed To basically form plans for the speedway and France wanted the track to have the highest banking possible to allow the cars to reach high speeds and to give the fans a better view of the cars on the track. Sure. Right? So, what, so if well, you you're looking s- across the way on the far straight and they're sitting flat there, you can't really make out what's going on. Right. But if it's banked, you're you basically sh- looking at all the action right there. Except you can't see what's right in front of you because it's banked. <laughs> well, true. But if
0: you're looking at three quarters of the track, you, exactly. you can actually So it, see actually it actually made a lot of sense and had foresight for why you would want that. Which is probably why it's often called the greatest spectator racing that you can go see because you can see everything that's happening all the time. Exactly. Versus some road races, some circuits you just... You just see them your like past. And you're like, all right, well,
1: another yeah. minute... It in 40 seconds, he'll exactly. be back. So, Mr. Moneypenny then traveled to Detroit to visit the Ford Proving Grounds, which had a high speed test track with banked corners. Ford actually shared their engineering reports of the track with Moneypenny, provided the details of how to solve the challenge of transitioning the pavement from a flat straightaway to a banked corner. This hadn't been done. Except well, it, for at the that's fourth, That's what's really,
0: really interesting about this stuff is that these guys had to figure this stuff out. Yes. The guy actually had to be like, all right, how do we transition from zero degrees to, I don't know, what's the banking? Do we know? It's
1: 31.
0: Okay, so Jesus. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> zero degrees to 30 degrees. You don't even want to drive straight up. No degrees, let alone this. Right. So you have zero degrees to 30 degrees and you have to make that transition. So nobody had ever done that before. No. So someone had to figure it out. And that's kind of that whole period of the world was let's figure it out. Got to figure it out. We're building the world. So now it's Google it.
1: (laughs) It's because someone Someone else else has. (laughs) Someone else has already (laughs) got it figured out. All right. So William Bill France took the plans to the Daytona Beach City Commission, who supported his idea and formed the Daytona Beach Speedway Authority. Well, of course, they're supporting it. They would, like, get this race off of our highway every weekend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the city commission agreed to lease a 447-acre parcel of land adjacent to the airport to France's newly established corporation for $10,000 a year for 50 years.
0: Oh, (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> someone someone is very disappointed that you're like 47
0: like these guys are still only paying 10 grand for this what year did that get signed what year was that uh 50 48 okay so, so somewhere around there till in 1997 it nascar was paying back. 10 grand a year a year for the it's property not even per
1: month making hundreds of millions of dollars yes i wonder if somehow that got renegotiated or I don't know. Maybe the city, because sometimes, like, think of all of the money that cities give for stadiums and stuff, right? To yeah, but I don't think it's like a 50-year contract. <laughs> whoever came up with that. Yeah, um, good on money penny. Yeah, or good on money penny. Whoever that was. So William France then began working on funding the project and found support from a Texas oil millionaire, Clint Merchinson. Merchinson lent France 600000 dollars along with the construction equipment necessary to build the track. Because, of course, a Texas oil millionaire has extra construction equipment just laying around. Of course. Sure. Okay. We'll breeze over that. France was also able to secure funding from Pepsi-Cola and General Motors designer Harley Earl. He also took out a second mortgage on his own home and sold $300,000 worth of stock shares to local residents. So he's like nickel and diming his life into this. Yeah, he's really putting everything he yes, has. Yes, he is. He's probably, I mean, he's put his pants into it, basically. Yeah. I mean, he was so all in. So ground broke on construction of the Speedway on November 25th, 1957. But here, think about $10,000 in 1957.
0: That's a lot of money that is in 1957. True. So the fact that he basically. And mort- it was it was like it was vacant property. Yep. So he got that much money or whatever. And then he basically mortgaged yeah, his up life. Up till
1: 97.
0: So he's what is this guy? Probably 40 years old at this time. Something sure. like that. So he probably lived another 30 years. After about 30 years,
1: he probably was thinking that $10,000 probably wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. Not a bad <laughs> deal. All right, so ground broke on November 25th, 1957, and in order to build these crazy high banking, crews had to excavate over a million square yards of soil from the track's infield. Well, because of the high water table in the area, being right next to the ocean, the excavated hole inevitably filled up with water. So they when they built the track, they didn't build up, they built down. And then- No, 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 they built up, but in order to build up, you have okay. to get that soil and all that... Yeah, you have to have something to build on. Yeah, right. So they dug it out from the center went like this and oh, yeah, we're like basically at sea level. So that all filled up, making the best of the situation. France named it Lake Lloyd after (laughs) Joseph Sachs Lloyd, one of the original members of the Daytona Beach Speedway Commission. So kind of as like a little nudge to one of the planner guys like, hey, you know what? This is Lake Lloyd. We did it just for you. Uh, The lake was actually stocked then with 65,000 fish, and France, being the resourceful race organizer that he was, later arranged for speedboat races on it. There you go. Making the best of it. So because of the extreme degree of banking, like I said, 31 degrees, Money Penny was the one who had to come up with a way to pave the incline. He connected the paving equipment to bulldozers anchored at the top of the banking, this allowed the paving equipment to go around the banking without sliding or rolling down the incline. Money Penny actually ended up patenting this construction technique and designed Talladega Super Speedway and Michigan International Speedway later. So, Money Penny, this guy like found his niche as yeah, he's doing got, these he's races. got it all figured for out. For sure. How do you anchor a bulldozer? On I, it, a I so, there's photos. Must of be it. a huge piling in the massive, ground. Massive. No, it's the bulldozer's on one side, massive chains going down to the. Um, basically whatever the paver equipment is. And then the, as the bulldozer drives around the top of the banking, okay. the paver just kind of follows it. Oh, sure. So you're basically just holding it up with a rope. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then in December 1958, the Daytona International Speedway was nearing completion. However, France was running out of money and needed to complete this project. So in a bit of a gamble, he started to sell tickets to future racing events to fund the track's completion. These were events that hadn't even been scheduled. He's just saying, you know what? We're going to sell tickets for next year's races, whatever they are, a.k.a. kind of the Tesla funding model here, selling promises to things that we don't know if it's going to happen. Right. But in this case, it worked. And on February 22nd, 1959, 42,000 people attended the inaugural Daytona 500. The race's finish was as amazing as the track itself. This was the first ever Daytona 500. Lee Petty beat Johnny Buchamp in a photo finish that took three full days to adjudicate. For three days, they don't know which guy won because it was that close. So it was the fastest racetrack to ever host a stock car race. The track's tri-oval design is 2.5 miles long, with 31-degree banking in the turns and 80-degree banking at the start-finish line. The front straight is 3,800 feet long. The back straight, is called the Super Stretch, is 3,000 feet long. The tri shape was actually revolutionary at the time, as it, again, greatly improved sightlines for fans. So your main bleachers are at kind of this end of the triangle, so you can literally see everything except for the one little turn in front of you. It's also extremely fast, Chris. It's actually one of the only two tracks on the current NASCAR Cup Series circuit that use restrictor plates in the cars to slow them down because the speeds are just so fast. The other track being Talladega. Right. But, in addition to the stock car circuit, the Speedway also incorporates a 3.8-mile road course. The first use of it was a 3-hour sports car race called the Daytona Continental in 1962. The race length became 1,200 miles in 1964, and in 1966 was extended to a 24-hour endurance race known as the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona. And we know that that is a pretty serious race. Yes, it is. Oh, I found this interesting, though. While the more famous 24 Hours Le Mans is held near the summer solstice, Daytona's endurance race is held in the winter, meaning more of the race is run at night than it would be as in the summer. Right. So the track's lighting system, which actually was only just installed in 1998, before 1998, there was no lights on the track. Okay. So during the Daytona 24-hour, they limit the lights to 20% of output in order to keep the cars dependent on their headlights throughout the entire race. All right. So it's just kind of some interesting facts about how it really progressed. And today, Daytona International Speedway, or the World Center of Racing, as it's nicknamed, is located just two miles from the very beach where it all started. It's come a long way from its humble beginnings as a simple stretch of hard packed sand. It sure has. That's uh, it's an
0: incredible story. I just I imagine if they if the guys that were racing that Wisconsin six cylinder yeah, <laughs> could have seen it. Could have seen it. Could have seen it coming. So great story. What
1: else of uh should we get into some news? Let's do some news here. But before we do, just to tell you if you like this podcast, we really think your friends will too. So we spread do. the word. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like us. You know, we you always, know what's crazy? What's that? We gave away a steering wheel. Right.
0: Right? Yeah. It's still here. He never picked it up. <laughs> so I don't So should know, we give away a steering wheel again? I don't know. I'm thinking I'm
1: gonna just give the steering wheel to somebody. I I'm I'm not sure. Well, how about we keep getting comments and reviews on iTunes and you might be the lucky one to get yeah, a steering you're right. wheel? So head
0: over to iTunes, leave us a five star review with a little bit of words. If you could just let us know what you like, that would yes. be great. Five stars only is all that's allowed that's not on
1: true, but we appreciate
0: <laughs> it. Um so uh, what have we got in terms of news?
1: So this has been kind of a crazy week. John Haynes. That's right. John has Haynes passed away. If and you have ever worked on a car or been to an auto parts shop, you see the whole library of Haynes manuals. So he did pass away this week, which is really sad. Now, I got my
0: I'm just going to read a little bit of his obituary and then I'm going to go into kind of my history with Haynes manuals. Sure. And why they're why they were important, I think. Um, from an early age, John had a passion for cars. And as a child, he loved nothing more than riding around the plantation with his father in their their Morris 8 saloon. At the age of 12, he moved to the UK with his brother David to attend boarding school at Sutton Valance School in Kent. It was at, at that school that John's flair for art and his entrepreneurial spirit developed and flourished. He persuaded his housemaster to allow him to miss rugby and instead spend his time converting an Austin 7 into a lightweight, sporty Austin 7 special. Huh. He eventually sold the car, making a reasonable profit and owing to the immense interest that received. He decided to produce a booklet showing other enthusiasts how he'd made it. Huh. He published a booklet build, entitled Building a 750 Special, the first print run of 250 copies sold out in 10 Days. Wow. So then he joined the Royal Air Force and uh, and an RAF colleague had bought a frog eye Sprite, which is that little tiny car with the little headlights and the little smiley grill that that you see. Um, It was in poor condition and he asked John to help him rebuild it. John agreed and quickly realized that the official factory manual was not designed to help the average car owner. He bought a camera and captured the process of dismantling and rebuilding the engine. The use of step by step photo sequences linked to exploded diagrams became the trusted hallmark of Haynes' manuals. The first Haynes manual for the Austin Healy Sprite was published in 1966, and the first print run of 3000 sold out in less than three months. Jeez. It's just a lot of people trying to fix their British cars. <laughs> I know honest. them
1: well. <laughs> to
0: date, over 200 million Haynes manuals have been sold around the world. Wow. John Haynes died on February 8th, 2019 after a short illness peacefully surrounded by his family. He is survived by brother, sister, two sons, four grandchildren, and his wife, Annette, whom the Haynes website says contributed hugely to the excess of the Haynes Publishing Group
1: and shares John's lifelong passion for cars. <laughs> I'm sure she contributed because you imagine him out in his garage with his little, like, camera. She's like, honey, you've been out here for literally 12 hours well, someone taking has to, pictures. Someone had to take the photos in the beginning. Maybe Annette was like, she's, he's like,
0: Annette, come over. Oh, she's you're right. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe she yeah. was the photographer. Um, the Haynes website obituary uh, says... Uh, he was, he was allowed. He has allowed his auto museum to grow from 35 cars in the beginning to over 400 vehicles with 125,000 visitors each year. Oh wow! So we have a lot to thank John Haynes for. Um, everybody that's listening definitely has probably had a Haynes manual at one point. Mm-hmm. I used to buy one for every car that I bought. Oh, wow. At some point I was just buying and selling too many cars in too short of a period of time <laughs> and I wasn't actually working on them. But everything I intended to work on. Right. You know, if you had a Volkswagen, you wanted a Bentley manual because that was Bentley Publishers made the best. But for everything else, it, it was Haynes. it was Haynes, and which I like way better than the Chilton manuals. For some reason, oh, yeah, I really like the other one. Yeah. The Haynes manuals are always always pretty good. And this is for me getting a Haynes manual that you can have in your lap while you're doing something is still better than going to the internet yeah. and like trying to like find some video of some guy and you're like scrolling and scrubbing through the video trying to get to the right. part that you want you open it up it's right there it's it, in it, sequence in sequence yep. and his i have to say without question his books led to an entire generation of people that could work on their own cars cuz all you needed was tools and, his and a book. And you could figure it out. Things have point. gotten a lot more complicated now. But I think that the man helped foster an entire generation of men that could work on their You're own You're probably cars. right. And uh, so um, they're lined up under the checkout O'Connor at every auto parts store. Um, rest in peace, John Haynes. You brought a lot to the world of wrenching and DIY and motoring in general.
1: No kidding. That's yeah. really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, we do have some interesting news stories coming up here, so I'll just kind of run through them. Bugatti is marking its 110 year, 10 years of operation with a special edition Chiron called the 110 Ans Bugatti, and I, which looked, is a hundred years of Bugatti. Isn't this thing just exactly the
0: same as the other Bugatti Chiron, but it has a badge that says 110 Ans Bugatti? No, Chris. There's a little red, white, and blue French flag on the interior. That's right. Oh, and also, also the the uh, the spoiler on the back that lifts up has a French flag on it. There you go. I do
1: believe. Well, that's what you're paying for. Sure. So, in addition, though, they're rumored to be working on a super exclusive. One off hypercar built for none other than Dr. Ferdinand Pike, grandson of Ferdinand Porsche, former Volkswagen chairman, and the one who brought Volkswagen and Bugatti together. The supposed price tag of this car is $18 million. We don't know much about the one-off, but we guess it'll be badged on the Chiron, or based on the current Chiron, and will be powered by the same uh, 8-liter W16 engine. And, quote, 300 miles per hour is within range. Who's saying 300 miles per hour is within range? Bugatti? Bugatti is. Jesus, where are you going to do that out on the,
0: I don't on the know. beaches of Daytona? Yeah, you better go <laughs> out to Daytona. <laughs> he did. The one guy did 276.
1: Yeah, with a modern Bugatti, maybe. So me some of those French testicles. Let's get it out there on the beach and, <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, next story here is one I picked out just for you, Chris. All right. The 2020 BMW X3M and X4M are here. Aren't you excited? Um, As we know... Crossovers and SUVs are overtaking sedans as America's favorite form of transport and as, a th- as enthusiasts who value driving dynamics over high seating position. This is bad news, but at least the manufacturer going full hot rod with the crossover views now with the what do you X3M mean at least- and X4M. Well, these are the smaller sport activity vehicles. So you can you actually
0: drive really, really fast to pick up your kids from soccer practice? I Or know. you can I be don't... the first guy home with groceries? Or you can get to the drive-thru before everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you can
1: deliver the bags of hockey equipment faster than any human I know, in history. Silly. So 503 horsepower in the M competition versions? Which, yeah, I don't know. That's going to be your competition. So
0: what do you think? Do you think we're going to start seeing any of these crossovers on the track? So far, you just see like M2s, M3s, or... You know you don't see the crossover versions of these performance cars out on the track. Do you think at some point I think you we're going to see like well, what about what about NASCAR? They're all the same but they all have like it looks like a Camry <laughs> but it's like the same thing. Are we going to see
1: the crossover bubble yeah, Are
0: you going to see the CRV like NASCAR?
1: Maybe. Just well, they have the truck series, NASCAR truck series. Yeah, but
0: they're not going to have a the crossover. The NASCAR
1: series. crossover series. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just
0: saying nobody's buying cars anymore, so that's why they're doing this, which Honestly, why don't they try to push the market towards something that doesn't suck? I don't understand why this is would anybody what people want when you put a car next to a big SUV. BMW, for at one time, had um, it must have been two thousand four, maybe right. two thousand five. I'm not. I'm probably going to get corrected on this. I don't know the exact time, but when the E46 M3 was out mm-hmm. and the E39 M5, you had an X5 4.8 is, okay. which had like you know how on the tachometer of like an M3, it's got like the little gauges that. As the car warms up, it moves the red line up Oh, sure. Yeah. It's got the the little, little lights. The little lights. Yep. It has that in the SUV, too. So that was too. like the
1: M that version. That was like,
0: but they didn't. They didn't call bat, it They didn't the call M. it that. Because they, there was probably some guy there that was like, this is an, uh, an SUV, we're not going to put the M badge on exactly. it, okay? And that guy got fired like two years later, <laughs> and he's like make, making hosen over in Stuttgart or something. Sure. And now we're stuck with M-badged crossovers. Yeah. Well, X4, as M- as
1: the joke goes, you know, the M badge only stands for marketing now. That's, that's at BMW. right. All right. What else do we have? Uh, this is just kind of a byline that I thought was interesting. All electric Bentley is going to be coming, and it's possibly going to be based on Porsche's new Taycan platform. That's not surprising. It's not at all, but there it is. All right. This is a crazy story. Not crazy, but it's crazy. I'm ready to be They in Call years. it Toyota's moonshot. In just getting,
0: one year. You know where else I heard the word moonshot this where? week? The Green New Deal. Oh. Also a moonshot. Sure. You know what happened when we went and did a moonshot? What? We landed on the moon, right?
1: That's why they're using it, Chris. So this is Toyota's. So
0: you're shot. telling me that it's harder to design a self-driving vehicle? Would you sit-
1: Okay, I'm trying to get to the lead here and you're giving it away. In just 1 year, Japan's biggest car maker wants to start selling a self-driving vehicle that it says will be, quote, the most powerful supercomputer on wheels. So yeah, that's their moonshot. Great. Shot. great. They- that's that's great. And, and what are we trying to accomplish by this? Well, so Toyota plans to introduce vehicles capable of driving themselves on highways. Kuffner said they would be rolling supercomputers. He's their research institute advanced development What guy. does that mean? What
0: do you mean it's a rolling supercomputer? Is it going to be doing your taxes for you while you're <laughs> driving around?
1: No, but they're getting at the fact of how much processing power is needed, basically, to do this. And so that's processing why... Processing
0: power isn't the problem. The problem is being able to visualize the world around you and interact with it in a way that is diverse enough to make decisions that
1: don't end up crashing your car or killing people. Well, that's why they have the Toyota Research Institute Advanced Development Inc. or Triad. That sounds like something that's gonna <laughs> murder people. Yeah, aren't triads like a Japanese gang? They are. They are. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, where is it?
0: Wait, um, is that just from a movie? What movies had the triads in I think it? it
1: has to be a real thing, right? No,
0: I feel like that's like a Steven Seagal film
1: or, or something with Jean-Claude <laughs> Van Damme or, or something. The uh, triads. The triads. Quote, if you think about building a research prototype, making a demonstration is pretty easy, but making a product is really hard. Okay. <laughs> Whatever we talk about our company, we often talk about being a bridge of the prototype to the product. So... They're going to, uh, I guess, try to make these prototypes that work in some environments actually come to the market in a year. So, but, dude, do, does anybody actually want this?
0: Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, yes, I think I'm, people I'm, do. I'm, I feel like I'm almost running out of ways to explain how all this is so I stupid. Know. It's just, it. no one, no, how much is this car going to cost? A, it's going to be obscenely expensive. But, you know, what? I guess what they're thinking is that we're going to push this technology and then eventually it's going to trickle down into, you know, the, the next right. Camry is going to no, be able to have some It absolutely this, will. And
1: I'll say, you know, you've been ranting for the last few episodes about how it's so terrible. People are going to, they're taking our steering wheels away and everything else. I would love a vehicle that can drive itself on the freeway for me. Great. I don't. Okay. Well, in other news, <laughs> guess what? Oh, Jesus. Mazda launched a 30th anniversary Mazda MX-5 Miata. It's sold out in four hours. There's only 500 of them. That's not that impressive. People four hours. People love the Miata, though, Chris. They do. That's the only reason I brought this up. Uh, quote, an entirely new paint color, Racing Orange, R- was it- developed for the MX-5 Miata 30th anniversary did edition. Did you put in your order at the Banana Republic? Or- I, <laughs> I did not. You also get unique wheels by Rays and upgraded Bilstein shocks, which, whatever. I just love that people love their Miatas, Chris. Honestly, it's
0: it's it's become to the point now where a Miata is cooler than other things because other things have gotten so less cool. (laughs) Right? No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's to the point now where there's so many stupid crossovers and dumb cars out there that Mazda keeps putting out the Miata, which is basically what everybody would consider a driver's car. Yes, it is. You know, and it's becoming cool as everything else. It's like it's like the guy that ages well while everyone else is just getting fat and ugly. <laughs> so at 45 years old, so, yeah, this dude looks pretty good just because everybody else is going downhill.
1: Yeah, it's like that's the, exactly the whole, the whole concept of a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. Well, the rise, the, the tide is lowering now and there's one ship that happened to be caught up on like some rocks. No, now, he's the high level. The
0: Miata is just sitting there just as the water goes up. <laughs> And it's the only (laughs) thing left
1: is everybody else is pulled out to sea to drown. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that doesn't love it. That doesn't say much about the Miata, but it does say a lot about the
1: automotive industry. Sucking. You're so negative. I think the Miata is awesome. All right. What's next? Automobili Pininfarina teases its upcoming electric hypercar, the Batista. Now, what is a Batista? Is that like a In Italian? I don't know. I think
0: a Batista. You're going to talk about a barista now or what? No, no, no. I think
1: a Batista (laughs) is like the, uh, um, no. Okay. So uh, Pininfarina, we know from Ferrari design lore. So they are the Italian design firm. Your Ferrari has your little Pininfarina badge next Eh, to it. It's just some sort of
0: common Italian name. I thought it was like, maybe I'm thinking of like, you have like a trebuchet. And then okay. you have, like, the... The Batista. The big crossbow that has a big dart, a big wooden, like, a tree. How <laughs> did sure. that come to mind? I just think that's what a Batista is. I thought I that's what it would be. I
1: think that's right. Probably not. Okay, so Pininfarina was always known just as the design firm, right? They're the ones that designed the bodies and everything else. Well, Pininfarina SPA in Italy and newly formed, supposedly independent automaker Automobili Pininfarina are 100% owned by Indian car and truck maker Mahidra. Mahindra. Mahindra. And
0: you know what kind of commercials I hear from Mahindra? What? Is tractors. Yeah, but hey, Lamborghini made
1: tractors at See? one point, so this it's could sick. be another renaissance. Could be okay, but regardless, Pininfarina is planning to produce a line of ultra high performance, clean transportation. "Quote: Bring to market unique, beautiful, and technically advanced sustainable luxury electric vehicles." You Got to have the buzzwords in there. We had plenty For, of them. If you can't check them off, <laughs> if you can't
0: virtue signal to all your other rich pals, mm-hmm. there is no reason in buying it. If you can't be like, hey, this is my supercar. <laughs> it's also green, but, but it's also green and doesn't destroy the earth. And you can do this with your arm out the window at everybody yep. that's driving around
1: cars that are not clean. I mean, this is this is a big deal. It's good for your ego. Yeah, you know? I suppose. I mean, if you're skeptical that this isn't going to happen, know that Pininfrina recently announced a multi-million euro commercial partnership with Croatian electric supercar maker RyMek. Rimac. S- Rimac. It's Rimac. I don't know why it's. Spelt RIMAC and pronounced RIMAC to supply the electric powertrain and battery. I'm pretty sure it's spelled R M I C. Well, I wrote here R I M I C. Yeah, well, you're wrong. Uh, Coincidentally, RIMAC makes a car called the C2 that is almost the same performance specs as the coming Batista, which is 0 to 60 in 1.85 seconds, which is ridiculous. 1914 horsepower. 258 mile per hour at top speed and a 1700 pound feet of torque from four electric motors, one in each wheel. So, so, I'm
0: imagining zero to 16, 1.85 will literally make your passenger throw up.
1: That will hurt. It, that's, that that's will a, hurt.
0: Those kind of g forces are pretty incredible.
1: Yes. Oh, but you have your g force little uh meter I there do. somewhere. So, we can l- bring that with when we test drive the new Batista. Yeah, I'm all set. So, basically, it's just going to be a RIMAC that's redesigned by Ben and Frina. That sounds all right. So yeah. Probably be well, it might be better looking. I They have already shown some designs of it. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes.
0: I don't know. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. We've hit our we've hit our limit.
1: I, so I hope it. you enjoyed an
0: okay. episode about the uh, they t- Daytona Speedway yes. and some of the history behind that. We've got a um some uh, something really cool coming up next week, don't we? Uh, we do. Can we say anything? Sure. Go ahead.
1: Oh, this is on me. I was talking. We were talking about your guests. No, we're not going to talk about it. We're we not going to talk, talk about it. Okay, no, we're just going to be uh, Porsche centric. We'll say okay. We have an announcement coming up. All right, that so good. you should tune in for that. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you all later. Take care.